Now for Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester, America's premier automotive news and information talk show. Now here he is, that automotive journalist with the photographic memory, Ken Chester. Welcome to Roadworthy Drive, America's premier automotive news and talk show. I'm your handy dandy tour guide for the hour, Ken Chester. So glad you've decided to join us. Really want to disappoint, I've loaded this show full of news and information that you're going to want to know. Topics I plan to discuss this hour include recalls, recalls and, well, recalls, a conversation about when regulation is a bad idea, and I'm going to end the hour with an out-of-this-world experience that you're going to want to stay tuned for. As usual, I plan to lead with news that I have found from the parts bin, but first, if you have a desire to add your voice or at least your opinion question or idea to the show, we want to hear from you. Call or text the Roadworthy Drive line at 872-222-9793. And that number, it's good 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If email is your thing, my address is ken at roadworthydrive.com. Either way, we'll connect you with me and the Roadworthy Drive crew. By the way, this is a good place to introduce you to the rest of the merry band of souls that are, in fact, the Roadworthy Drive crew. At the controls, you know him, you love him. The suits won't let us run the show without him. Say hi to the designated adult in studio, my friend and executive producer, Jack. Normally holding it down at mic two would be Roadworthy Drive's answer to the sweet and snarky, our gamer girl extraordinaire, Sasha. But she is not in studio with us today, uh, presumably due to weather. So we're flying on one less engine, so to speak. But don't worry. We have skilled professionals here in studio and years of operation under our belts. We will see to it that this show is operated safely and that you will be protected during our flight. Howdy, Jack. Wrong talk show, Brett. What? From her palatial <laughs> estate somewhere in the state of Iowa. Here's Sasha on the phone. Hi, dear. Hello. Wait, hello, wait, hello. wait a minute. Palatial estate? Palatial estate somewhere uh, in Iowa. Hold, hold it, hold it. Did the suits approve that? Yes. Uh-huh, that's the problem. Cannot get a chair, can't get a decent mic, but they're buying Sasha palatial estate no, they, out in the countryside. No, they didn't buy it. Sasha did it on her own. Yes, I don't need anyone to buy me anything. Oh, I my have goodness. my own estate. She is and, independently you wealthy. Know, you should know yes. that the suits also made sure that I had an entire satellite team right here to make sure that my voice was heard on the show today. Oh, my. And there and there you go. By the way, folks, if you're wondering, yes, she is there because of the weather today. It is not very nice here in Iowa right now. Yeah. No, uh, and I think it's funny that you said presumably because of the weather. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's because I chipped a nail while I was getting ready. <laughs> well, see there, the truth comes out, people. Okay, Ken. What <laughs> the is truth in, comes out. What is in the parts? Well, it, you know, it would help if I had the right piece of paper in my face here. Um, it, it, apparently, I grabbed the wrong pile. Hold it. Here we go. There you go. That's better. There you go. Um, have you ever heard of something called Lime Bike? No. Well, no. bicycles are a big thing in this mosaic that we talk about called uh, mobility. Yep. It's called a – this is a dockless bike-sharing startup. Um, bicycles, just regular bicycles, mm-hmm. they raised 70 million 
dollars. Wow. On an additional funding round. Okay. Wow. Since last March, they have raised $132 million for bicycles. Okay, what are their plans for the bicycles? Um, what they do is they make bicycles available as a mobility choice in large cities. Like we have downtown here. Even bigger. Okay. Think like Manhattan, San Francisco, things like that. Okay. But along, along those lines. Now, they admit that while bike sharing is a capital-intensive business, they don't just buy off. In this case, they don't buy off-the-shelf bikes. They actually design everything in-house and work with the best manufacturers in the world. Now, why their bikes are different, I have no clue. It, that throws me. So, But here's something else. Uh, you think that's a lot of money for bikes, right? Mm-hmm. It, they'd also talk about a Chinese competitor, Mobike, $600 million they raised last summer. Whoa. Uh-huh. Or another company called OFO, that's O-F-O. I'm not cussing. O-F-O, that's the name of it. <laughs> Just so we're clear, secured a whopping $700 million last July. But that was over in China, correct? Yeah. But wait a minute. Uh, New York City-based jump bikes... They recently raised $10 million. And, uh, yeah, it, it's crazy. It is crazy. Um, now, both product-wise, the startups are also banking on electric bikes. And they and Lime Bike just added Motoride Bike to the dockless fleet. Now, you say, what is an e-bike? Um, it's actually a bike that assists you elect with electric power. In pedaling. I've actually ridden one of those in the hallways out here. In the hallway? Really? Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Did, did it you was, hit anything? No. No, but it is it is the weirdest feeling in the world. Mm-hmm. Because literally all I had to do was, what I'm going to say is, you know, both legs go down once they come back up, and the thing just powered it. Well, on that note, you realize that those e-bikes, what they call them, mm-hmm. could run two grand or more yep. a piece. Now, there's some there's some... These are battery-operated electric bikes. Uh, let me throw some pros and cons at you. Okay, pro. Uh, perfect commuting vehicles for young urbanites. Make distances seem shorter. Headwinds less fierce. Hills easy to climb. Uh, they lower the barrier to daily cycling. Uh, University of Tennessee did a recent 800-person survey. They found e-bike owners rode an average of six point. I'm sorry, 3.6 days a week as opposed to people who ride a traditional bike, averaging 2.7 days a week. Now, 99% of these bicycles available in the e-bike category are what you call pedal-assisted. That means you have to be pedaling in order for the electric motor to add power. So you can use pedal-assist on the way to work, and then turn it off on your way home when you want a better workout. That's the pro. Let me throw a con at you. Okay. Now, you can buy a used bicycle, a bicycle. Mm-hmm. For a hundred, couple hundred bucks, and for the cost of an e-bike, why buy an e-bike when you can actually buy a scooter for about the same money, which gives you more power and allows you to ride in the street? Now, the e-bike critics claim that's safer for everyone since motorized bicycles move too fast for narrow bike lanes. Let me tell you something: in New York City, like I keep saying, in Manhattan, mm-hmm. your chances of getting hit by a bicycle pedal by somebody is great, greater than getting run over by a car. Now, that I could see. Because the way they've got it set up, sidewalk, bicycle lane, parking, traffic. 
So if you ain't paying attention, you walk off the curb, you probably get hit by three or four bikes where you realize. Ow. Yeah, and they be moving. Yeah, those, And they're pedaling. These are not e-bikes. Those boys move really fast because a lot of them are couriers. Uh, well, not just that. A lot of them are commuters. What I found when I was in New York last, about this time last year, you know, there are a lot of commuters that use a bike. And trust me, in Manhattan, a lot easier to get around because part of that, the city supports that in, term, in bike lanes, mm -hmm. which make it easier to navigate traffic. And uh, Manhattanites have a very strange idea about personal space. They kind of measure them in fractions of an inch. Yeah. That would not work for me. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's up close and personal. I like my wide open wide open spaces. Yeah, you would not make it Manhattan, my friend. It's not cute. Now, here's the thing. E-bikes on the other hand typically reach 20 to 28 miles an hour. And there is an uptick in accidents involving e-bikes and pedestrians. Not to mention all of that, you got to deal with the batteries. Typically you get 3 years worth Three years of a battery life, and it's three to six hundred dollars to replace them for wow. an e-bike, and wow. it adds weight. Uh, an e-bike is around fifty or sixty pounds, about three times the weight of a normal bike. So if you got to carry that thing up some stairs or maneuver it, if you live in like a city, that could be a problem. I can, yep. I can see that being a big but, problem. Yeah, but e-bikes. Let me go to the. Let me go to another extreme on the two-wheel thing. Okay. Um, there's a man that just accomplished 200 miles an hour on an NHRA drag bike. He made history um, a few months ago, reached 200.23 miles an hour during the second qualifying run at the National Hot Rod Association Gator Nationals in Gainesville, Florida, making him the first pro-stock motorcycle rider to top 200 miles an hour. That is not in a car. That's on a motorcycle. Oh, wow. Wow. Thought I, I'd throw that out there with you. And I've seen... Is there a video of that? I don't know. Uh, he also okay. set the previous record of 199.88 miles an hour in 2015. And uh, people in the know had expected the 200-mile-an-hour barrier to be broken this year anyway. Uh, on a motorcycle, people. Yep. That, well, that, that, wow. Yeah. Just thought I'd leave that with you. Coming up, the latest on recalls. <laughs> Roadworthydrive.com is the place to keep up with the latest happenings with Ken and the show. And the wheel of a Plymouth And 
the smart one. That's you. I'm the smart one. That's you. Drive Plymouth today. If you're just tuning in, this is Roadworthy Drive. I'm your host, Ken Chester. Go on. Oh, okay. I was hearing something weird, so I thought I'd stop. No, you're fine. Go oh, on. That, okay. Uh, folks, yeah, we're, we're dealing a little bit here. If I sound a little off, uh, Lady Sasha is actually phoning it in. She's on the phone and getting a little strange noise in the earphone, so that kind of threw me for a minute. She's usually at my side harassing me no uh, but yes yes but not happening um in person i am getting harassed long distance yeah right. courtesy of right. ma bell oh well anyway having gotten through all of that mm-hmm. back back to the conversation at hand right because recalls 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 right? absolutely with yes. such a sophisticated device such as a modern motor vehicle it's not hard to imagine that sometimes things can go wrong As we've mentioned before on this program, the modern vehicle that you drive is most likely the most regulated piece of machinery that you use every day. With over 15,000 individual parts provided by two to 3,000 different suppliers from across the globe, it's also one of the most complicated, including painting. It takes about 24 hours or more to manufacture a vehicle from floor pan to finished product. However, despite the best planning, things do go wrong. And that brings us to recalls, recalls, and recalls. Yeah, and I saw the one one this weekend that really kind of threw me. Yeah, but... What was it? And we're going to talk about that. Actually, ah. it's kind of what I'm going to lead with. Um, what they're talking about, folks, is that the number one vehicle in the world in terms of sales... And he's going to harass a Blue Oval. Uh, you better believe Ooh. I am. But here's the thing I find particular. First, let me lay the groundwork. Um the F-150, the Ford F-150 and Expedition are being recalled for a transmission clip problem that may result in the vehicle not actually being in park when it says it is in park. Oh. Uh, but I've got a little bit – I'm going to get into this, but I've got a little bit more than even Mr. Jack doesn't realize. Okay. Okay, now they're talking about covering over 350,000 vehicles made for the, the 2018 model year that have 10-speed and spick-speed automatic transmissions. And I start with a question that Dak Dak may not realize. And my question is, does GM have the same problem? I don't know. Oh. Now, you should know. The question should be, that's an odd question to ask. Not in the automotive industry. It's not. Uh, Now, the reason why I bring it up is because both the 6-speed automatic and the 10-speed automatic were both co-designed by Ford and GM. They use different... Uh, electric brains for controlling how the transmission works, but the guts of those, the guts of both those transmissions, were developed together and manufactured together, uh, because the cost of transmissions is so excessive. Okay. Now, on the affected vehicles, a transmission gear shift cable clip may not be "quote unquote" seated properly, allowing it to dislodge over time. And I wondered if that was a supplier issue, a manufacturing issue, or an assembly issue. And the reason why I bring those up is a lot of this stuff you get from what they call a tier one or a supplier that works directly with the automakers. Right. And some of these are already pre-assembled sub-assemblies. So I don't know if it's that or if the way that the clip was designed 
uh, or engineered to be designed is the problem because it didn't allow it to be positioned right. Or finally, is it everything's fine, it was engineered properly, but the way that it was installed or manufactured uh, in assembly caused the problem. And I'm assuming we don't have a clear answer. And we do not. Okay. But the problem boils down to this, allow, this problem allows the driver to move the shifter in park and remove the ignition key while the transmission gear may not be in park with oh. no warning. No kind of instrument panel warning, light, chime, nothing. So I could put the vehicle in park, come off the brake, and the vehicle is still going to roll. Could be if you're on a hill. And I don't have control of the steering because the steering wheel is locked at this exactly. point. Exactly. However, that was going to be my question. If you, whether the and it depends. A lot of the old timers always set the parking brake. If you if you do uh, that in this case, then you you may not even realize you have a problem. Or if you're on level ground, I mean, it's not going to roll because it's may not gear. I mean, if there's nothing to cause it, you would have to be on some sort of incline. Okay. You know to make you know if this is true. Uh, but what kills me here is they've got this down not only to the dates but the plants, which means it was not every single vehicle in a given in a given run. Okay, what plant is it? Uh, it's a number of plants for a number of dates, and that's the issue. Okay. Now, before I forget and before we run out of time, um, I want to point this out because a lot of you may not know whether or not your vehicle subject recall, and maybe you don't own a Ford and you're wondering. Um, the government has a website. We've quoted it here. I'm going to quote it again. It's called safercar.gov. And the tab you're looking for when you get there is vehicle owners. It will allow you to put in the VIN of your vehicle to find out if it's subject to any sort of safety recalls. Now, understand that safercar.gov only, co only covers safety recalls. Automakers have a variety of recalls that are not safety-related all the time. So if it's not a safety recall, but you may have something going on with your car that you think is not just you, always, always, always touch base with the dealer because they can also type in your VIN to see if there are any what we call technical uh, bulletins. service bulletins that are out on your vehicle. And then a lot of times it's something that's not safety related, but may be procedural or mechanically related that they'll fix at no charge to you. And... Uh, in a case like that, my daughter saved over $4,000 because she listened to dad and got a very serious problem covered by the manufacturer. Now, I want to jump to something else because I don't want to feel like I'm picking on Ford. Uh, Tesla also has a problem. Yes, they do. Uh, 123,000 Model S's built before April 2016 to retrofit a power steering component. Basically, some bolts that they found under certain circumstances would be corroded and may fail. Now, you won't find this recall on that site. Why? Because Tesla voluntarily recalled them. And it's a voluntary recall not mandated by uh, NHTSA. It may not necessarily be there. Now, why they did it is they found excessive corrosion in the power steering bolts in only cold climates, particularly those that frequently use calcium or magnesium road salts. So it was not an assembly or manufacturing issue. But it was a material issue that they felt was serious enough. And rather than take the chance and just replacing them in cold climates, they're replacing all of them. And they figured it cost them about $60 million. Next, when more regulation is a bad idea, like ignoring history. You are listening to Ken and Roadworthy Drive.
You're listening to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester on the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Howdy, welcome to the second half of this hour, Roadworthy Drive. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ken Chester. For those of you who want or need more than your fair share of the road, check out the show website. That's roadworthydrive.com. Discover videos of our behind-the-scenes going-ons in studio while taping the show. Listen to audio clips of past shows and so much more. Sasha is our social media diva who keeps things light and lively across the universe of social media during the week between shows. See how she keeps the social in our social media you will not be sorry. Now, regulation. Now, I'm not talking politics here, really. I'm not. But the regulations that govern many of the moving parts of today's automotive industry um, require that every now and then we have to go there. However, every now and then, politics gets in the way. And there are a couple of things afoot that may end up affecting your pocketbook I want to share with you and know I'm not talking about the current dust-up about tariffs. That's another conversation. Rather, I'm talking about these two things. And I, I title this this topic, When Government Intervention is Not a Good Thing. Yes. All right. Now, I, I classify this first one under, say what? Uh-oh. U.S. considers tougher rules for imported cars to help domestic automakers. Um, I'm going to quote the... Uh, uh, the philosopher, essayist, poet, and novelist, George Santana, he says, mm-hmm. those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. What he actually yep. said is those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Yeah. Now, let me, let me read why I'm getting all philosophical and whatnot. The administration is considering ways to require imported cars to meet stricter environmental standards when entering the U.S., a move it sees is protecting domestic automakers because it will make imports more expensive. Okay, time out for just a second. Isn't Toyota, isn't Honda, isn't Kia, and isn't Hyundai making the cars in the United States? Mercedes, BMW, yeah. Yep. They are, and we will get to that, too. And I'm assuming that those companies I just mentioned would not be under this little regulation. Well, we don't know that. Um Japanese three big automakers, for point, case in point, Honda, Toyota, and Nissan, run a combined 11 assembly plants right now in the United States. And that's uh, the biggest chunk of the 18 foreign assembly plants per, supplying the American market. Volkswagen builds here. Hyundai builds here. Kia builds here. Mercedes builds here. And BMW builds here. And in the next year or so, so will Volvo. Now... Here's what people don't remember why I was waxing a bit philosophic. In 1980-81, we called it saber-rattling. Congress was threatening tariffs and quotas on uh, foreign automakers. And they wanted to hold it, and in fact they agreed to hold it, to about 2.2 million vehicles imported a year. So what did the imports do? They built factories here, which put further pressure on the supposed domestic manufacturers. Because now these folks are competing on their own soil. Now, the other thing to remember, back then, 
Iacocca was trying to get Chrysler Dodge back on its feet. And they did. And he did. And paid off the loan seven years early. I'll never forget it. He uh, stood in front of the Des Moines, uh, I'm sorry, the Detroit Economic Club, and he said this. He said, we at Chrysler borrow money the old-fashioned way. We pay it back. And there's a whole other story behind that I'm not going to get into. But here's my problem. They want to loosen and reduce um, emission controls and fuel economy standards for domestic manufacturers. And they think there's a way in the same law to make it tougher for foreign manufacturers. And really what you're really talking about out of 17 million vehicles is roughly a half to one million vehicles that may be affected if they get all of this curving that they're trying to do. But something else you need to think about. If I was a foreign automaker, and BMW's already said this, BMW said, we're going electric. So even if they figure out how to make this work, uh, foreign automakers are going to do what they always do, improvise, which means you're going to push them more into electric vehicles for sale in the United States. Didn't we just report earlier in the show about vehicles that are coming in from China that are electric? Yep. We talked, yep. We talked about that. That's a thing. That's happening. So in the rest of the world, they're down on the internal combustion engine. Why would we uh, handicap our manufacturers? And by nature, the tier one suppliers that provide uh, components to those manufacturers, which, by the way, employ double the amount of people in the United States that the big three do. Double. Double. Wow. Double. And these guys are gearing up worldwide. They've got investments and things. China is the largest automotive market right now. China is getting hardcore because as a, as a communist regime, they can make rules and make yep. them stick. And right now they're going heavy electric because their uh, environment is so toxic. Now, if you want to compete, loosening rules and fragmenting your supplier base is not a good thing. We've been through here before with a weakened supplier base. Okay. I have a question. Mm -hmm. How many more car manufacturing plants right now are sitting empty, and how many of those will be filled by BMW, Mercedes, Volvo oh. in the next five years? Okay, number one, there are none sitting empty, and all of those makers you just mentioned built brand spanking new plants, including, by the way, Toyota Mazda, who's building that new plant, brand new plant from the ground in Alabama right now. The plant okay. that even this state was trying to get. Yeah. Yeah. No. See, that's a misnomer. Right now, the, automotive, the American automotive industry is coming off some of the best years they've ever had. And right now, they're making money hand over fist selling full-size pickup trucks. This ain't going to help that. If anything, it's going to make it worse. And by proxy, the unintended consequence is actually going to increase competition uh, in the United States, as these folks say, okay, we're going to do like the Japanese did almost 40 years ago. We're going to build plants in your country, which is great for employment. But if, you're, if your goal is to protect your current base and the current automakers, you've just introduced domestic competition that, if anything, will make them weaker, not necessarily stronger, because the automotive industry is so capital intensive. Yep. And it doesn't help because all these folks use the same suppliers. 
there's a supplier base that have you ever noticed how one new feature for one automaker over a period of like a couple of years shows up with everybody else? Yep. You ever wonder about that? Same suppliers. They may be different applications of that technology. Same suppliers. Just bringing it into the industry in different products. So, yeah, not necessarily a good idea, folks. But we will follow that to see where it leads. And hopefully they will understand the importance of unintended consequences. We've been here before. And well, that's the point. And we're going to continue to be here unless somebody slaps somebody up alongside the head and goes, hey, knock it off. Yeah. Well, finally, an experience that is literally out of this world. You can make your reservation now to save your spot. This is Roadworthy Drive. This is Roadworthy Drive. This is our last segment for this hour of Roadworthy Drive. Thank you for dropping by. I'm Ken Chester. Jack, what if I told you that you could stay at a -a one-of-a-kind hotel? This special hotel is not easy to get to, and until recently did not even exist at this location. Oh, yeah. Making a reservation at this property requires a minimum 12-night stay. And uh, did I mention the deposit? $80,000. No. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Jack, I'm going to need a check. From the from the suits. Uh, not going to work, dear. Go on. Yeah. Welcome to Aurora Station. Aurora. In outer space. Seriously. What? Seriously. Like, do they have like a video, like a uh, picture of what they think the rooms are going to look like? I don't know if they have an interior picture, but they're talking about putting a new luxury hotel, two hundred miles above the Earth, and mm. uh, you'll love you'll love the nightly price. Jack, I know you've got this in petty cash, though. $792,000 a night. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong, (laughs) Kimosari. What? You don't have $9.5 million? No. Uh, Go ahead, Sasha. What you're saying is Mm. Roadworthy Drive is going interstellar. That's, that's, That's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that... As yeah. Well, you know. Guru, okay. I he, need to go and assess this motel. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> He's getting a little happy every since he discovered that buzzer. He's getting a little too buzzer happy. In any case, it's billed as the first luxury hotel in space. Uh, obviously, uh, it's being uh, designed and built by a com- an Houston, Texas-based company. You know, Houston Control. Okay. Not surprised. Really? Orion Span Inc. They hope to, no. to launch it in 2021 and uh-huh. greet their guests starting 2022 with each okay. with two crew members each company each excursion. The platform will orbit 200 miles above the Earth, offering six guests, and you better be close with these folks, 384 sunrises and sunsets as they race around the world. I'm sorry, race around the planet for 12 days at incredibly high speeds. Do you realize that there are three different companies 
launching where you could buy a ticket on space travel? You've heard of SpaceX, yeah. right? Correct. Uh, yeah. Blue, yeah. Or, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. I've heard of Virgin Galactic. Absolutely. Which, yeah, which is the one that they already, like, they've already taken people out there to space? Well, did you realize, and I did not know this until researching for the piece, but they said this is actually cheaper than um, people who have actually gone into space. And I'm looking for the numbers. That's because they thought, said because... they said that some seven private citizens in the last mm-hmm. five or six years have actually done it, have actually gone, and they've paid. Here you go. From 2001 to 2009, seven private citizens took a total of eight trips to the International Space Station, paying an average of 20 to $40 million every time. Ooh, that's so, a little pricey. So this is a drop in price. Hey, this is a bargain price. I wonder if you can get. I wonder if you can go on Priceline. Probably not. Right? J- hey, Didn't just we... trying to get a deal, brah. Trying I to get that. a deal. Now, mm-hmm. Orion spans chief architect and operating and chief technical officers. Surprise, former NASA employees. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Now there's another company uh, that's mm-hmm. looking to offer like. St- uh, storage in space called Bigelow Aerospace. Stop. Um, also, uh, they're at, NASA's actually using their modules now. Uh, they deployed an 8-foot, 3,000-pound inflatable activity module uh, back almost two years ago to okay. the International Space Station. Hold it. Yeah. Sasha, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Would that give a new term to the term space junk? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Oh, no, no I'm not. Just asking. I know. No, Jack. I know you can real. You can see this with me. I mean, seriously, saying tourists going up into space, an orbiting um, way to store the access that you can't store here on Earth. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, and who, everything. And what happens? When, what happens if you have to actually call? Uh, the police to your room because of a disturbance. How does that work? I and, oh, don't know. Thing. Room service. Um, How does that work? Right? <laughs> it's called MREs. Uh, take so there's no takeout. No. Oh, so I can't get a decent pizza up there. Is that mm, what you're probably telling me? not? No. Wow. Um, well, and see, because I mean, the food is different. I mean, ask any astronaut that we know. Well, what what kind of food would you expect? Let me throw there? let me throw this at you. Uh, they're not. You're not just going to sign up and let, they're going to let you go. Civil oh. civilians will have to go through three months of training, beginning with online courses to understand basic space flight, orbital <laughs> mechanics, and pressurized environments <laughs> in space. Also, hotel guests will also be required to have required exercises on spacecraft systems and contingency training at the company's Houston facility. And it's also important to note that other than those seven civilians, they haven't they haven't actually started commercialized space travel as a regular thing. This is still kind of coming. Not quite so for there. For three months, I have to train for the vacation that I'm going to be taking for 12 days. Yes. Where I am going to sign up to willingly eat space food mm-hmm. in a luxury hotel Mm-hmm. Um, that I will not have room for. And, and we need to clarify what we mean by hotel. We're talking about a space 43 and a half feet long 
by 14 feet wide. Uh, A pressurized volume of 5,650 cubic feet, uh, just so you know. It will accommodate four paying guests and two crew members, which means Uh if you're going to be with four people for 12 days, y'all better be friends or at least on talking basis. Yeah. Because it may not get cute. Now, they expect this to get bigger over time if everything goes according to plan. As it grows, they'll do it in modules. They'll add modules. So you may actually have... Uh, some serious uh, space accommodations up there. One thing to think about, and this is their long-term vision, their long-term vision is to sell actual space in those new modules. They're calling it, wait for it, a space condo. So for either living or subleasing, that's the future vision here to create a long-term, sustainable human habitation in low Earth orbit. Yeah, but isn't there a disease that it does well if you go up to, if you if you could get out into space, that it causes the disease to somewhat go into remission and it buys you time? I have no idea about that. But if you want more, www.orionspan.com. And we've come to the end of another hour. Be sure to tune in next time when we do it all again. You have been listening to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is a copyrighted presentation of the Roadworthy Drive radio network. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of the Motor News Media Corporation.